0: You're listening to the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church, a historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of Faith in Practice, a Q&A podcast hosted by Antioch Presbyterian Church in Woodruff, South Carolina. My name is Zach Groff. I'm one of the pastors here at Antioch, and I have with me in the studio today my co-pastor, Dr. Joseph Piper. Dr. Piper, thank you for being here. If you're tuning in for the first time, uh, this is one of many Q&A podcasts that we've done over the years. Uh, in a variety of contexts, and uh, the way this works is we we gather questions over the course of a month uh, on our website at antiochpca.com, and then uh, I pose them to Dr. Piper, and we have a discussion around them, and typically these questions concern practical matters and also sometimes uh, very specific questions regarding biblical content or theological um Theological issues. And so we're always delighted to have this ongoing conversation with our listeners. And before we dive into the questions today, let me open us with a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the privilege it is to study your word, to behold the beauty and glories of Christ in your word, and to consider these different matters, cases of conscience, practical things and even theological puzzles. We pray that you would keep us far from vain speculation and grant us your spirit that we might consider these questions with profit, spiritual profit, not only for us, but for all those who are listening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our first two questions uh, are actually coming from the end of a long list of practical questions of ecclesiology and polity submitted by our friend, Isaiah Groom of Langley, British Columbia. And the first is, how should members respond to a session that is small and overworked but may appear to be rushing to elect new elders?
1: Isaiah, thank you for the question. It's it's a very important question for the life of a congregation. I've seen many congregations uh, rush into the election of elders. Congregations that have a rotating system often find themselves in a situation of putting warm bodies in spots. Others, like the congregation you mentioned, simply have a session that's undermanned, uh, overworked. But it's never an excuse to to put uh, an unqualified man into office. We have specific warnings from Paul, both about putting uh, new Christians into office, but also laying hands on, um, we participate in the sin if we do that in a premature manner. On the front end, you have the responsibility with those concerns to go to the current session and pastor or pastors and express your concerns about that and ask them to uh, consider seriously if if they're moving rashly because they're overworked or if they really think these men meet all of the qualifications. If they proceed with men that you think are not qualified, well, of course, you should talk to those men when they're nominated, and perhaps you can... Allay some of your concerns at that point but time comes for a vote all the sessions done is nominated them and the power of the congregation is to elect its officers and so at that point uh, you would vote your conscience and vote against them and if others agree with you at that point then they would vote the same way if the men are elected then you have a responsibility to uh, submit to the session
0: it's pretty straightforward, but if you're listening to this and you're kind of on the other side of the desk and you're, say, pastoring a church plant and you're eager to have your own elders or deacons... Um, we're there. <laughs> and we're there. Um, take the advice that I've received and uh, received from the scriptures, but also from men who have been in the ministry for a long time and have seen seen this in their lived experience. Don't be hasty to lay on hands. Uh, Chris Vogel, who is the coordinator for church planting and vitality for mission to north america the pca said to me in a podcast interview recently that in his 33 years experience uh he has seen plenty of church plants um rush into uh, nominating and electing officers he has never seen a church plant move too slowly and so his advice is always to take your time uh There's no hurry. Uh, To be faithful sometimes means to be slow in these things. But great question, Isaiah. And I hope you you noted how Dr. Piper wisely encouraged you uh, to submit to the session which the Lord gives you through his appointed means. Um, Our next question from Isaiah, again, this is the last one in a long list that we've been working through over several months, is uh, the Westminster Directory of Public Worship delineates three sub-offices of elder, pastor, teacher-slash-doctor, and then other governmental offices, a.k.a. ruling elders. Why do they make these distinctions, and how should we understand these categories today?
1: Well, Isaiah, the distinction goes back to Ephesians chapter 4, where when the apostle deals with the uh, officer gifts that Christ has bestowed upon the church, he says, um, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers— The first three I take as extraordinary offices, obviously the apostle, uh, the uh, the prophets were in the local churches, and some itinerated, and then the evangelists were apostolic helpers. Then the next two have to do with the church now in the age in which we live. And the problem goes back to uh, a Greek grammatical problem. There's two ways that one may translate the end of that verse pastor teacher are pastors and teachers and actually amongst presbyterians there is a great deal of difference as to how to, to do that so in the orthodox presbyterian church they take it an office for pastor an office for teachers last doctor and then uh, an elder uh, in the pca uh, we take that as in our book of order as a uh, The pastor teacher. It depends on which uh, interpretation that one gives to the grammar. So, at the end of the day, um, the distinctions then go back to the tradition of the church. Uh, And there's no substantive, serious problem here. In the OPC, I have colleagues that are in local churches as teachers, and they function on the session as teachers, but their responsibility is to teach at Greenville Seminary. Other churches have taken that, as did some of the Puritans who would actually be uh, in the church, uh, functioning in more of a uh, a didactic role. And that's, I think, the way Calvin also understood it. He divided it between a, a pastor and a doctor. In either case, the scripture allows for men to be functioning as uh, people like me have functioned, uh, teaching uh, theology at a seminary. Uh, Men call to church to particularly fulfill that uh, role. Uh, The thing I, I like about the PCA is that we emphasize that ordination is to word and sacrament. And we don't, if we have a guy that still has that extra or that special role, we would still maintain that his ordination be to word and sacrament. Now, the other part of your question gets into uh, plurality of ordin- our diversity of ordinations. Uh, in the Presbyterian Church in America, we believe that there is uh, one office of ruling elder, and both minister and ruling elders participate in that office, and the minister has no superiority with respect to that, although normally he would moderate the session. But we believe that within the office of elder, there's a subcategory of one who preaches, and we would see that as a a next ordination. Now, ordination to preach carries with it the ordination to be on the session to rule. But the ordination to rule would not carry with it the ordination uh, for preaching. So a ruling elder who went on to become a, a teaching elder would then be ordained, because that's, that ordination is particularly to The preaching
0: of the word this is a perennial question an issue that comes up all the time and we love discussing it if you have follow-up questions about it please continue to send them our way we're going to move on though to another polity issue regarding elders this is somewhat related Uh, anonymous asks how do you know if your church has a true plurality of elders what does it look like for elders to rule equally in the church And related to that, what does first among equals mean? Is that a biblical phrase? Why or why not? What would be a litmus test or criteria to evaluate fairly whether your church is being ruled well by a plurality of elders?
1: I don't know quite where to begin with this question. Um, There's a lot there. Yeah. One of the things for you to do would be to, uh, as a visitor, attend session meetings and observe how they function. Uh, If there's a genuine plurality of elders, then... Uh, the pastor is not uh, dictating what goes on, and everybody is simply rubber-stamping what he does. There's a wholesome discussion. That ties into First Among Equals. It's not necessarily a biblical term, but it goes uh, a good way back into the history of the church, and that the uh, eventually, with the plurality or uh, equality of elders, the teaching minister uh, would be the moderator of the session. At some point, he actually was referred to as the bishop or the overseer, not in the way that we use that term today, but simply he was a first among equals. He was the presiding officer. Presiding officer. And that's necessary. Uh, you cannot have a, a meeting of a group uh, without having somebody appointed to preside. And so, by his office, uh, as a uh, teaching elder, so oft- oftentimes because he is better trained with respect to ecclesiology and things such as that, that uh, he moderates the meeting. I do know some churches that actually the pastor uh, does not think that's his strength and is a ruined elder that moderates the meeting. But the the plurality will be manifested in how they function and the only way you can observe that is by attending meetings and uh, seeing how a session functions and then see how the elders operate within the church are they pastoring are they involved in the lives of people uh, teaching but also in pastoral visitation and discipleship and counseling and again according to gifts and so if we see it's it goes far beyond what takes place uh, between the four walls of a meeting. Really, real parity takes place in um, the activity of the church. So once again, if elders are not involved in the life of the church, then there's not a genuine um, equality amongst those elders. That's a very important part of our ecclesiology in the PCA, and I've always appreciated this, and it goes back to Thornwell and Dabby and others, of, of the high view of the ruling elder and the insistence when it comes to uh, rule, the teaching elder has no more authority than any other ruling elder in the church. So you might moderate the meeting, but to say he's first amongst equals simply says somebody has to do it, uh, but his word is not the final word. On the other hand, it's gonna be his responsibility to be a a vision caster, uh, to bring in um, Ideas uh, for the session to discuss. He's not the only one that can do that. There might be someone else, again, on the session that is really good in thinking through what the church should be doing biblically. But it's how they function, both in the meeting but also in the life of the church.
0: I think that was very helpfully pointed out that elders in a Presbyterian church are expected to be involved in indeed taking leadership, exercising rule in every area of church life. Um, I'm Right now, what I'm saying is aspirational because I don't have <laughs> elders in my congregation, but um, part of what I envision here at Antioch, for what it's worth, is uh, in our Christian education anyway, in a men's discipleship down the road, to have our classes predominantly taught and run by ruling elders. Now, does that mean we don't have interns involved? Of course not. But what it means is that the pattern that that will predominate will be the men who are entrusted with soul care in the church by God's appointed means actually exercising that soul care, going on visits, teaching Sunday school, and then whatever interns we have, being a a church close to a a fine seminary as we are, whatever interns we have will be coming alongside of those elders to uh, accompany, shadow, help, assist, and uh, even be mentored uh, by those men. So it's not all falling on the teaching elders, but also um, so that The interns will get a rich experience, and our people will be well served.
1: That's good, Zach. And this ties into the first anonymous question there. One of the things, uh, and and back to Isaiah's as well, is you look at men in the congregation, what you're looking for before man's ever nominated as an elder, yes, is piety, but how's he interacting in the congregation? Is he uh, he serving? Because an elder must be a deacon. Does he show uh, Uh, empathy and compassion for people is he manifesting in, in a good way leadership skills and so we're looking for these things as well
0: yeah is he spiritually minded right um the next question from same anonymous is regarding christian education which we just brought up a little bit broadly speaking how should we handle extra biblical practices such as sunday school It creates a lot of ambiguity around the above-mentioned questions and situations. I have yet to find a good source to answer my queries surrounding Sunday school such as can lay people teach classes, what should be the qualifications for lay people who teach, and so on. Do you have any recommendations to help me in this area? J.R. Miller has a good book called The Devotional Life of Sunday School Teachers, a modern classic, 20th century classic. In fact, the church that sent me to seminary was named after J.R. Miller. It was originally J.R. Miller Memorial Presbyterian Church before it became Crossroads Community Church in the 1980s. <laughs> um, but that that's a thats a helpful uh, piece of literature that is frequently a gift to Sunday school teachers. Did um,
1: Law College Press just redo that?
0: I don't. Somebody know. did. No, somebody did, uh, um, I think, Solid Ground... Solid Ground Christian Books has an edition of that, or maybe Sole Deo Gloria. Um, it's available. It's it's in circulation. Uh, it's pretty easy to find. But so anyway. in terms of using the word extra biblical, uh, we need to understand that uh, the
1: church has been given the disciple that the responsibility, not just of public worship, but of mentoring and discipleship, and. These tasks go far beyond what we would do in public worship. The church, covenantally, the elders of the church also have responsibilities provided for further covenant education of our children. I know some homeschool families think, well, we can take care of all of this ourselves. And yes, the parents have that responsibility, Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78. But the elders do as well. Now, churches will fulfill that in various ways, and so, You mean by extra-biblical, there's no mandated way to accomplish it, but there are wise ways to accomplish it. Sunday school, as it has evolved from once being a method to get the gospel to poor children uh, in difficult neighborhoods, has become a, a means of covenant nurture. It's good. It's also good for the children because then the parents can also be in a further... Uh, discipleship time uh, together in adult classes. So it is a useful tool. The elders again in their situation will, will decide the best way uh, to use the church resources in terms of fulfilling the biblical responsibilities of uh, uh, discipleship. The uh, question about whom should t- who should teach, Zach's already said that, Uh, Ruling elders should obviously be involved, particularly at the area from uh, young men up through adults. Uh, Paul does say that women may teach women and children, and uh, we can have very gifted women who can teach the the, uh, younger uh, classes, as well as gifted men that maybe are not elders teaching uh, uh, middle school uh, classes and things like that. So, yes, the elders are going to lead the way. They will also will train others. One of the ways that you're going to help a man test his gifts as an elder is you're going to put him at least in a team teaching, first maybe a substitute teaching, then a team teaching situation, or give him a class of his own. And most churches um, are not going to have enough ruling elders uh, to uh, carry the load. So then you want people that are spiritual, that— uh, are uh, in the word, but one thing we neglect is teaching teachers how to teach, and that we need to be involved as church grows to providing instruction uh, for, uh, for teachers in, in the Sunday school program.
0: Dr. Up, this isn't written down, but what, what do we do with, as Presbyterians, what do we do with men who have teaching gifts but don't share all of our distinctive convictions. So they're members of our church. They make a credible profession of faith, but uh, perhaps they don't agree with us on all five doctrines of grace, for example, or perhaps they don't agree with us on recipients of baptism. Uh, Do we, do we just rule them out? They can't teach any level of Sunday school or do we still disciple them and develop and nurture their teaching gifts and give them those opportunities?
1: This is arbitrary, and I might be wrong. I would make a distinction between the two categories. I find the five points of Calvinism to be essential uh, to our doctrine of soteriology. So I would have more difficulty with a man who uh, didn't hold to one of of the five points because of the cohesion and necessity than I would a man that uh, was not yet convinced of covenant baptism. So a man not convinced of covenant baptism could be assigned a number of areas to teach. Um, And if he's already proven himself a faithful man, and the only way we'd ever receive the man in the church was that he would understand that he is not to teach against our position. He is to support by his attendance at all covenant baptisms. And he's continued to study the issue. With those caveats, then I'm very happy to receive in the church. I would do the same as well for a person who had a, a genuine, credible profession of faith but did not believe, uh, say, in particular redemption. Um, it be the same caveats then with him as well. But in terms of the teaching, I think that uh, that's where at least I arbitrarily draw the line.
0: No, that's very helpful, Dr. Piper, and, and I think that a Good that, question. That aligns well with the PCA. I mean— we draw the line on who can serve as as an officer, at least in our in our precedent, uh, Bowen versus Eastern Carolina Presbyterian case that came up through our courts. I think late '80s, early '90s, something like that. Uh, basically, ruled that in the PCA, you cannot serve as an ordained officer if you deny limited atonement or particular redemption, and or uh, infant baptism. Um, you must hold to both of those in order to serve as an officer, along with you know all the other core doctrines of our, uh, of our commitments. Um, but the question of who can teach Sunday school is a little bit different than who can serve as an officer, obviously. So these are good things to think through. Uh, we have a list of questions here from a Presbyterian in South Carolina who is a faithful listener. And then a couple questions from another brother who actually gave us his name. So I'll ask a couple of these anonymous, and then I'll jump down to uh, the brother who gave us his name in the time that we have remaining. The first from a Presbyterian in South Carolina, what biblical principles apply to how to steward our physical health, referring specifically to diet, exercise, and the like?
1: I guess the uh, first one that comes to mind that we're not to be addicted to any um, any physical thing. So whether it's uh, tobacco or alcohol or Diet Coke or whatever, um the Bible doesn't specify with respect to use of of these things, but the Bible does specify that uh, Christ alone to be the master of our bodies. Uh, second would be that we would expect a person to use sanctified common sense uh, in terms of uh, taking care of themselves. We do have that responsibility. I think it's a requirement of the uh, sixth commandment. But it's greatly a matter of Christian liberty in terms of, of we don't let science dictate this. You know, is, Do you have to have a certain body mass number or things like that? No, obesity is a different problem because at what point does, is obesity uh, a serious enough problem that it attracts from a person's uh, testimony? I, I'm not saying one way or the other about this. I'm just saying it's something that I think that as, uh, as Christians we have to deal with. Now, even there, uh, I think we all can recognize the difference between a person who is uh, so overweight that he can't even get in an, uh, an airplane seat. And then we also have to see: is this actually a, a, a glandular problem? Is this something that you know, is uncontrollable?
0: I mean, the principle is, is it a matter of discipline or right. is it a matter of genetics? Because self-discipline, self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Right. But your genetic makeup is just, you know, you you have to deal with that and and figure it out. I mean, it's not a matter of self-control. It's just a matter of, like you said, glandular regulation or whatever the the medical phraseology would be. But I think you hit on the principles. That is, we are to promote our own uh, physical condition, both as a testimony, but also Directly speaking, um, in submission to God, and to glorify him by stewarding well the gift that He's given us in our bodies. I mean, think about all the delight our bodies bring us, the sensations yeah. that Paul God does say that body discipline
1: be. does have some profit, from yep. exercise. and uh, i'm I'm one that thinks we all should have some type of physical activity, particularly those of us that have sedentary jobs, that we need to be uh, involved in exercise. I've not done it here, but in my previous churches, I always required interns to have a, of their choice, an exercise program.
0: I ask the interns uh, what they do for physical activity and exercise to keep alert in order to keep their minds sharp, because you can't have a sharp mind and think clearly if you don't exercise your body somehow. And, you know, I I challenge myself on this. Of course, it's going to look different when you have a house full of small children that are... Taxing your body and that you're taking care of as well versus <laughs> being a single man. And certainly my life looks a lot different now than it did before children. Um, but anyway, th- that's a great question. And Chris, you, you need touched to think on something else,
1: it. Zach, as well. And that is, we all should know ourselves well enough to know that if we're sluggish, if we don't have energy to do uh, the responsibilities of our vocation, if we can't be alert in a worship service, uh, these should all be telltale signs. Uh, that uh, I need to get my body under control. On the other hand, I think that we are negligent if we don't do some kind of regular physical examination. Younger men and women don't need to do that. I remember after Pastor Martin had his uh, prostate problem.
0: Al Martin. Yeah,
1: he uh, at the Pastors Institute, I think I was at that one where he actually... uh, uh, really rang the bell on the, these men get over forty; they should be getting an annual prostate exam. Now it's been it's been raised, but me- medically, when the doctor said that, I think that's very important. It's the number one cancer in men. I think now they say forty-five or fifty.
0: Yeah. the The point is that you're taking care of yourself and you're not living recklessly. The well, Lord, we're
1: tempting God if we're living
0: recklessly. We are. We are. And there's a blessing. To longevity, because by it you can enjoy not only your offspring, but you can also serve the Lord and reach more people uh, as a believer, as an evangelist. Uh, great question, Presbyterian in South Carolina. I want to ask his next one too. How should we yeah, view? Yeah. How should we view magic in fantasy literature or in fantasy board games, card games, and video games?
1: A lot depends on what is meant by magic. Uh, if you take magic as part of the genre of fantasy literature, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong about it. We know it's fantasy. We know it's fiction. Oftentimes, those types of uh, that type of literature actually helps us distinguish between uh, good and evil. Um, but then there is books that would promote a bad kind of magic. So back there were all of the uh, dracula series that teenagers were reading now that's that's bizarre um werewolves and stuff like that Yeah, now we're talking about paranormal stuff right uh and so and then when you get to card games and and such we also need to distinguish between that which is cultic and that which is merely fantasy Mm. i don't know of of fantasy card games, but I do know of cultic card games, and you stay away from those, or Ouija boards or things like These are activities that uh, Satan, our wise dark enemy, has often used to pull people over into the dark side, so we have to be very careful with those types of things.
0: You know, you can call me a stick in the mud, but I do have hobbies, and card games, when I was a kid, Card games factored into my life for about a year or two before I I decided to invest my time elsewhere in music and sports. And so, what I struggle with is how it's a good use of time to get eyeball deep into the magic card games like Magic: The Gathering. Which I don't or, know any of those. Yeah, things, so. yeah. Or like even Dungeons and Dragons, that kind of stuff. It's not so much a subject matter that that. I wonder about is, but the time commitment to really do that in any meaningful way. I'm, I'm always astounded by the demands that, that those activities huh. place on people. But well, that's really a different question. Well, when
1: video games are worse, plus now, if a child's on the video game, anybody in the world can get into his computer. So. Yeah. That's right. uh, let's go back. Uh, let's take an example of the Harry Potter uh, books. Yeah, I was and wondering films. if you're going to bring
0: up Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah
1: because I think in, I've only seen a handful of them. I
0: read all of them. I
1: read some of the books. Uh, the thing about in Harry Potter, there's a clear line between good and evil. And uh, that is the conflict that's going on. And so I think when a young person reads those books or sees the film, they do have a grasp of the importance of good uh, resisting evil.
0: That, that is that is the mainline pro- plot or narrative of Harry Potter. I agree with you there. The difference between Harry Potter on one hand and Narnia or Lord of the Rings on the other is actually the line is is a bit fuzzy because in Harry Potter, the setup is a school of wizardry with different houses and Gryffindor is clearly the noble house. And you have Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw which are their things but Slytherin, this is where it's tricky. Slytherin is, even the way it sounds, <laughs> Kind of a, a, a dark magic, you know, the the, the sponsoring professor is the sorcerer, you know, with the the alchemist kind of stuff. And, and all the bad guys come out of Slytherin, all of them. He who shall not be named, Draco Malfoy. I mean, all the bad guys come out of Slytherin. But then at the very end of the day, the big reveal is that the faculty professor that sponsors Slytherin is actually the hero. He's the one that's been protecting the protagonist all along. And... I mean it's br- it's a brilliant reversal and move that JK Rowling does. I actually admire her storytelling for this, but it it blurs the line between mm. dark magic far into and it, light and light a lot light of Christian magic. families
1: do and the parents have looked at them and yeah. have
0: said that's fine. Where I land on it is it's a matter of uh, of liberty. Yep. Um I'm much more comfortable putting Tolkien and Lewis in the hands of my 8 to 12 year olds. And then I am Harry Potter. I think Harry Potter I'll I'll put in the hands of my 15 year old. Yeah. At that point, she'll and 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 my kids will be able, I think, to to think through that and appreciate the literary uh, value, but also discern, oh, this could be problematic if if we took it uncritically. So.
1: And it can also create good conversations with teenagers. That
0: point. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. We. This is the big thing, parents. The fundamentalistic impulse, I think, is ultimately a bit ham handed because what you do (laughs) is you, you create suspicion and when your kids finally get exposed to it, which they will, they're going to think, man, why were mom and dad so, so anxious about this? And what's much better is to walk them through that kind of material and discuss it with them and help them learn how to think critically. Now, obviously that approach only goes so far. There is some stuff that is just pure trash and you got to tell your kids, we're not reading that because it's trash or it's just vile. Um, but, you know, I don't think Harry Potter falls into that category. But at the end of the day, no matter of Christian liberty, uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't force the issue with anybody. Great question. While we're talking about fantasy and magic and the paranormal, Dr. Piper, what do you think of Bigfoot?
1: I don't think about
0: it. <laughs> i do
1: (laughs) i know you do
0: you're obsessed (laughs) (laughs) i'm amused is what it is all right enough fun enough fun for today um i want to dive into mike's questions here mike palmer of harvest alabama (laughs) long time friend of dr pipa's knows dr pipa from way back at covenant presbyterian church in houston Mike asks, uh, when the Israelites left Egypt after living there for 430 years, living in houses, how did they all have tents to live in while in the desert until they arrived in the land of Canaan? Did they have tents in the attic or in the garage? They had no need of tents before the exited. I have never thought about Nor this. Nor have I. <laughs> never thought about this. I know how
1: they got all the materials to build the tabernacle. Yeah. Because that was all given to them, mm-hmm. so I am assuming that uh, in the plunder they got from millions of Egyptians, in God's providence, uh, they were given things needed. Either they were given tents, or things needed to
0: make tents. Also, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, the Hebrew "ohel," the tent, in Hebrew, it's it's different than what we conceive of as a tent in modern western culture it's it's much less of a, a tear down pull apart pack up kind of thing it is a bit more semi-permanent i would think um i mean well certainly the it tent has to of the be meeting, because they
1: stood at the door of the tent yeah things like that had doors
0: yeah so um these would have been much hardier than what we would typically associate with tents in america either native american tents or even uh you know, our recreational tents. At least that—that's what I suspect. But I mean, it's a great question. It really is. I mean, because they had doorposts in Egypt, or else they wouldn't have painted the doorposts with the blood right. of the lamb. So, I don't know. I think it's one of those things that God's word does not clearly tell us. No, nor do we know what they lived in in Egypt. Did yeah, we lived, don't. We they, don't know they, for
1: sure. Did these canvas-walled houses? Mm-hmm. I don't know. No, I. Yeah, God doesn't tell us outside the fact they did. And that in his providence, he provided whatever they needed, not just to build the tabernacle for him, but to
0: build their own tents. Because before they came to Egypt, they were pastoralists. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their households would have been moving throughout Canaan into the the Negev and back and all this, and they would have been in tents. So they would have had that in their background. It would have been an important part of their culture, actually. Um, But, yeah, 430 years in one place— you tend to forget some things. So great. I mean, interesting question. All right. He asks the second one again about it's the almost Exodus. as bad. <laughs> Don't take it personally. Not my friend, Mike, <laughs> <laughs> while wandering in the desert for 40 years, what work did they have to do as it was stipulated not to work on the Sabbath? They didn't need to provide food or cook it. They had manna. Their clothes didn't wear out. Yes, they had flocks. But what else was their work?
1: Well, uh, they did have to provide the manna to prepare it. They could not do that on the Sabbath, but they ground it or uh, they cooked it. so there was sufficient work to fill two me- to feed two million people every day. And then the, the amount of livestock to furnish, um, not for, for the eating, but just what they have and the livestock producing as they traveled, uh, they would need uh, shepherds. Uh, and a lot of animal husbandry. Uh, And then keeping the camp clean. God's very particular about hygiene in the camp. I'm I'm always a bit amused when he says, take your spade outside the camp because I walk in the camp. Uh, An element of hygiene and uh, separateness as a holy people. Um, uh, But again, they... uh, Whatever work they did do, so the preparation of food, the collecting of sticks to, for fires and things like that, we know that a man was stoned because he could have made those provisions. Plus, the fires were kept going. It was a, a deliberate, high-handed act against God to go out and pick up sticks for a fire. So when we little insights that we get, uh, there would have been um, the need to gather uh, wood uh, for, for fire Uh, There would have been, uh, I imagine there would be guards and watchmen posted that would have rotated through the various tribes. Been military practice, I would think.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's pretty clear the Levites were busy. Um, The priests, the sons of Aaron, I mean, they all had very particular specialized roles in, in tabernacle service. But beyond that, I think the the rest of the community was not divided into a a hyper segmented or compartmentalized or specialized workforce performing different tasks i think like dr pipe has said you'd have military responsibilities cycling through tribes and then uh, there were certain craftsmen who would have roles craftsmen yes um and and that's detailed uh, quite a bit in terms of the construction of the tabernacle and you imagine you know they'd be maintaining uh the different tools and implements and, and weapons of war that uh that would have been at the disposal of the people. Um,
1: you know I just read in chronicles uh, that there were gills, and so when they list the various tribes and chronicles of the families uh, there was a whole town of pottery makers. Uh, that would have been something necessary to do, particularly when you recognize that uh any unclean Ceramic pot had to be destroyed if an insect fell into it. So there would have been uh, active crafts like that.
0: Yeah, there would have been. I think in general, they're all sharing the load on the, the main just day-to-day surviving in the wilderness uh, responsibilities. If you ever
1: camped even for a week, Mike, you would, uh, you'll would know there's plenty of work to be done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep, which is why uh, Pastor Groff does not go camping for a week. Um, (laughs) not with
1: six children anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh,
0: I like work, but not that kind of work. Not right now. Anyway, well, that brings us up on our time for tonight. And we are so glad uh, to have so many fun questions and they've had this conversation. It really is a privilege, Dr. Piper to be with you. Um, and with you and, uh, folks, if you're listening, I hope that you remember December 4th is the PCA's 50th birthday. Uh, what a blessed occasion it is. And why December 4th? Why was that the day that the First General Assembly met Dr. Pipa? Do you know why? Do you remember why? Because that was the day that the Southern Presbyterian Church was founded. That's right. During the war between the states. And so it was that. historically significant. And I think after maybe, what was it, three General Assemblies, they moved it back into June, back into the summer months. Um, you I'm would not sure that it was early on. Some
1: folks in the PCA would want to know that
0: date. <laughs> yeah, well, it is what it is. There's I mean, another
1: important December date, Zach. Yes, sir. The second, December second, the SEC championship game.
0: Alabama plays Georgia. Remember that, folks. December second, SEC championship game. Thank you, Doctor Piper. <laughs> I'll know not to bother you on December second.
1: In the Um. afternoon, beginning at 4 (laughs) (laughs) o'clock.
0: That's right. So it's Alabama versus Georgia this year? All right. Well, that's a good rivalry. It'll be a good game. Oh, it's going to be a good game. Yep. Well, hopefully it'll be a good game for you. You know, Dr. Pipe is a big Alabama fan, but I'm an eyewitness to this. He is a good sport. When Alabama loses, he is always a good sport about it and says, hey, there's always next year.
1: Well, they lose so rarely, it's, it's easier.
0: <laughs> yeah, they lose so rarely, it's easy to be a good, a good sport about it. All right, folks. Well, it's, you know, it's a good test, though. Yeah?
1: I come to Lord's Day, I can't be mourning a loss of a football game.
0: Of course not. Right. Because you're, you're rejoicing in the resurrection That's of your right. Savior. That's right. Amen. All right, folks. God bless you. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this edition of the podcast of Antioch Presbyterian Church. To submit your questions for the next Faith and Practice segment, please visit AntiochPCA.com slash podcast. For more information about Antioch, visit us on our website at antiochpca.com.